The meeting among Democratic leaders in the House was tense, and the frustrations were palpable. For weeks, the Democrats had watched as President Trump and his top aides effectively gave them the finger, refusing to comply with subpoenas for documents or let key witnesses testify about the contents of Robert Mueller's Russia report. For some, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's cautious strategy, investigate but do not impeach, had reached its limits. The House had impeached Bill Clinton over sex, Tennessee Congressman Steve Cohen asserted, one of the leaders of the Democrats' impeachment caucus. But Trump, he said, is raping the country. Is the tide in the House moving in Cohen's direction? We'll discuss with the veteran congressman, and we'll dig into the striking new indictment of Julian Assange for publishing classified information on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, it seems like every week there's some development that fires up the Democrats in the House, gets them angrier, gets them more frustrated. This week it starts out with the White House basically telling Don McGahn he can't testify before the House Judiciary about some of the strongest evidence in the Mueller report, how Trump had tried to get him to lie about his instructions to get rid of Mueller. McGahn complied and the Dems lost what they had hoped would be a crucial witness yeah, that John, would galvanize the country. Don McGahn was their John Dean. He was. They were hoping. He is the guy who is at the heart of the whole obstruction case, right. uh, which is in a lot of ways the strongest case against Trump in terms of impeachment. And he is the primary actor in a way. I mean, he's the guy who was asked to fire right. Mueller. He's the right. guy who was asked to get Sessions to unrecuse himself. Right. And, and then the guy who was asked by Trump to lie about it and, and put out a public statement that disputed what actually happened. Exactly. He is exhibit A for the prosecution witness, the key witness for the prosecution on the obstruction case. Right. And he has essentially stiffed the Democrats right. uh, because— in his view, in his lawyer's view, this is a fight between the White House and uh, the Democrats, and he doesn't want to get in the middle of it, and the president has ordered him not to testify. Mm -hmm. And so the question then for the Democrats is, all right, well, well what do we do if we don't have a witness to put on, if we don't have a case to put on? And I think um, you started to feel over time this argument the Democrats were making that they were left with no choice but to pursue impeachment. And that also was a smart tactic, they believed, because it would give them a stronger leg to stand on in court. And so you started to feel the momentum. You started then, to feel more then, Democrats coming out right. in favor of impeachment, some who were on the fence but seemed to be leaning toward mm -hmm. impeachment. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have these uh, meetings with Speaker Pelosi. And she's still not there. She's still not there. She is still cautious. She sees the political risks. And, you know, the tensions between the leadership, Pelosi and her deputies, Steny Hoyer and uh, some of the others. And, and by the way, it is clear that she is calling the shots. Oh, there, oh 100. For the committee chairman, Nadler, Schiff. Cummings and all the others. One hundred percent. She is an enormously powerful speaker. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the Democrats have to get the American people on their side, but first they have to get Nancy Pelosi on their side. Right. And I don't think that's going to be easy. One of the chief 
impeachment rabble rousers, mm-hmm. uh, Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee yeah. is going to be our guest today. And right. it'll be, he made a, an impassioned, he got up in one of these meetings mm-hmm. in front of the speaker, takes some courage to do this, right. and made a fairly impassioned plea yeah. uh, for impeachment. Trump is raping uh, the country. Trump is raping the country. <laughs> right. yeah. Nancy Pelosi was not moved. And I have to say yeah. that as the week progressed, while you started to feel momentum for the pro-impeachment forces, I think that started to turn a little bit later in the week for a couple of uh, important reasons. Um, the main one, I think, being that kind of substantive reasons is that a couple of federal judges ruled in favor of subpoenas, the, of, the House had of, brought, yeah. of subpoenas, both in the Deutsche Bank uh, mm-hmm. case, that was a uh, federal judge in New York, and mm-hmm. then the accounting firm, and then the accounting firm, another federal judge, that one in Washington. But you know, the, the already there's going to be appeals. I saw that uh, the uh, appeal case on the accounting firm is going to be argued by the three judge panel of the Court of Appeals in early July. So. The wheels of justice move slowly here. The clock is ticking. And if the House is going to move to impeachment, presumably they would want to do it this year, not next year when it's an election. Maybe the most important development, I mean, Mm -hmm. we'll have to wait and see, is something that happened in the legislature, not in the courts, not in the Congress, but in the New York legislature, where the Democrats were able to pass a law requiring Trump Mm -hmm. to turn over his state tax returns to three congressional committees, and uh, the state returns are basically the same as the federal returns. So it may be that no matter what Steve Mnuchin does or doesn't do in terms of turning over those documents, that the Democrats will get those tax returns. That could be a big deal. It could, um, but I think there's still lots of hoops to uh, jump through. But before we get to Steve Cohen and the impeachment issue. I want to talk about this new Julian Assange indictment that just dropped Thursday afternoon. We did not see this coming. We did not see it coming. It goes well beyond the earlier indictment that we talked about back uh, last month, or I think it was in March, uh, on this show, because this one specifically charges Julian Assange with publishing classified information, classified documents that he got from Chelsea Manning, the Afghan and uh, Iraq war logs, also the State Department cables. And uh, it makes the point that this was classified information. Assange had solicited it and published it, published it without taking out the names of human sources and that they, they uh, hammer Assange really hard on that. But the mere fact of here, it seems to me that the Justice Department, the Bar Justice Department has crossed a threshold here. They've crossed yeah. a line. They are now charging Assange with doing what news organizations and journalists do all the time, which this is, is a big deal. publish newsworthy classified information. It's a, it's a very big deal. It's got, as you say, real uh, First Amendment implications for investigative journalism. It is interesting. When we talked about this, uh, about Julian Assange the last time, it was with uh, Bob Litt, right. the top lawyer for the intelligence community during the Obama administration. He was praising that indictment as being surgical, as staying right. away from those those issues um, that could have an impact on on journalism, mm-hmm. he won't be saying that now. This, the, the, the Trump administration has, right is going to try to make the argue, argument that this was mm-hmm. narrow, but the it, the important point is is what you just said. It's setting that precedent. It's crossing that line. You know, ten years from now. You know, people may not remember the distinctions between an organization like WikiLeaks and the New York Times. This could be very dangerous for uh, the work that we do. Well, we have the perfect person to talk about it, our bureau chief, uh, Sharon Weinberger, who will be with us coming right up. So let's get on with the show. Sharon Weinberger, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Sharon is our Washington bureau chief at Yahoo News, a seasoned national security reporter. And um, we were trying to think of who can talk about this bombshell new Assange indictment. And we immediately thought of you. What do you make of it? 
Well, I think in some ways it's what we've expected from what's been out over the past few weeks and months since the news first leaked that there was a sealed indictment. Going through it today, it is striking for me the government's language that I think, I know that a number of people will disagree with me, I think this should be very concerning for news organizations. Why? So it's clear if the DOJ's allegations are true, and it is, these are allegations, it's an indictment, we don't know if it's true, but the allegations of some of the specific things that Julian Assange did went above beyond outside of anything any legitimate journalist would do of trying to help Chelsea Manning crack a password. These are things... That was the past indictment. And that was very narrow. And it was specifically focused on encouraging Manning to break the law. This indictment goes well beyond that and specifically charges him with violating the Espionage Act by publishing classified documents that, as I recall, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and virtually every other news organization in the country also published. And that is why it should be concerning, because the arguments before were precisely that. We shouldn't worry. You know, the indictment is Assange doing things no national security journalist would do. But exactly that. If we're now talking about indicting people, of prosecuting people for publishing classified information, then all news organizations are at risk. The question of soliciting classified information... Mm -hmm. Um, versus accepting classified information is a hazy one. If you look at the um, secure drop instructions that the New York Times has, read them closely, could that, they're they're talking to people about how to leak things securely. Is that a form of solicitation? Well, that's exactly what leapt out at me. And, you know, the second page of the indictment says, Assange and WikiLeaks have repeatedly sought, obtained, and disseminated information that the United States classified due to the serious risk, risk that unauthorized disclosure could harm the national security. As the website then stated, the WikiLeaks website then stated, WikiLeaks accepts classified, censored, or otherwise restricted material of political, diplomatic, or ethical significance. Now, Isn't that what all news organizations... It's almost explicitly what you worked for an organization, news organization called The Intercept, which focuses on... And I I have their... Intercept welcomes whistleblowers guide right here, which I just printed out from their website this afternoon. At The Intercept, we are strongly committed to publishing stories based on confidential material when it is newsworthy and serves the public interest. Very similar to the language that WikiLeaks is uh, accused in this criminal indictment of publishing. And then it goes on. This is The Intercept's own language about tips to whistleblowers when they are going to leak confidential, sensitive information and how they can avoid detection. So tell me how what Assange is accused of doing here differs from what The Intercept did and when you were there and continues to do. Let me take it one step farther. You can tell me the difference between what The Intercept does and the New York Times secure drop page or every single journalist who is posting their proton mail, their encrypted mail, or their signal number online saying, leak to me. Yeah, I think it's a difference in in bluntness and, you know... Solicitation. Right. But what I was going to say is, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that when we report... And when we talk to government officials with access to classified information and we're reporting on sensitive national security matters, implicit in our reporting is a desire for those sources to leak classified information to us, even if we don't explicitly say, hey, leak us classified information, break Break the the law for us. So here is where there is a difference. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the indictment, some of the things just jump out at me. I think it was in the prior, the statement they quote Assange telling Manning of uh, curious eyes never run dry. And then they repeat this, like, what on earth is that a solicitation? That's crazy. But what isn't crazy... Um, that was something Assange had texted or to Manning. chat mail to Manning. Right. Which DOJ is interpreting or alleging is an indication that, that Assange was asking for further leaks. So, right. so here is something different. So you can look very carefully at what The Intercept posted, and I'm sure at The New York Times or other news organizations as well, The Intercept never says, please leak us classified information. We are looking for information on this. If you read uh, the superseding indictment, it quotes specifically, and I'm not saying that this is 
proof of solicitation, no. but WikiLeaks posted the types of things that they were looking for. Here is the information we want. The top 10 leaks or something like that. Well, look, I for. mean, the very first paragraph of the intercepts language points out, in fact, we were launched in part as a platform for journalism arising from unauthorized disclosures by NSA contractor Edward Snowden, classified documents that Snowden leaked to Glenn but is Greenwald, it saying, one of the founders of the But is it saying, please come to us, we want NSA workers. It does not say we want NSA workers to come leak to us classified information. It says we're looking for whistleblowers, people looking for wrongdoers. There's a difference, and there were frankly a lot of discussions with one of the best First Amendment lawyers in the country at the news organization about this, about what was illegal. This was discussed right. at length, as I'm sure it's discussed at every news organization that that right. is involved in security. Well, job. that does strike me as sort of you know some legalese you know cover that the Intercept may have here. But I, you know, well, I Mike, find okay, you know, let, when let, WikiLeaks let me pose. says classified information of political, diplomatic, or ethical significance, that is essentially saying we want stories that are in the public interest. Mike, should you and go to jail for asking for an unredacted, if you ask a source for an unredacted version of the Mueller report, right. should you go to jail for that? Um, no, I don't think I should. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I mean, look. Then how is that different from what The Intercept is doing or what any news organization is doing? When you call a source and say, hey, I'm looking for X, Y, or Z. This is why, and I disagree with Glenn Greenwald on more things than I can count, but he was a little bit of a voice. have the two of you on together. The the founder. That would be the intercept. But but Glenn was a little bit of a voice in the wild among media when the indictment, when the first indictment came out and people were saying, there's no slippery slope here. And Glenn was out there along with some others saying, no, no, it really is a threat. Mm -hmm. What we see today is that it is a threat because yeah. that is a really hazy line. Well, by the way, it is worth pointing out that the Obama administration was looking at all of these same issues and all of this conduct uh, by Julian Assange and had a very vigorous debate inside the Justice Department, inside the White House, I believe, as well, and ultimately made the decision not to bring charges like this, or really charges at all, because they were worried about the precedents it would set in terms of... Now, what the Justice Department is saying, what they're telling reporters is, look, there are uh, differences here in what Assange does and what the rest of us do. In particular, they rest a lot on the fact that Assange's, the, the material Assange Uh, published included the names of human sources for the U.S. military and the State Department, and this endangered their lives. And, you know, most of us would think twice about identifying people who were sources that might put them at risk. So, you know, they're going to hang a lot on that. There is no question. But the precedent that that, that this sets is There's no question that Julian Assange is is not a traditional journalist in any sense, but it is the precedent. It is the haziness that you talk about. And, you know, as I said before, 10 years down the line, when there is a case with some of the same set of facts involving a mainstream journalism organization, if they exist anymore 10 years from now, making these kind of fine distinctions uh, between what Julian Assange did and what a New York Times reporter did is going to be harder and harder as this recedes into the past and this precedent gets set. So it's not about Julian Assange. It's really about the precedent and what happens down the line. That's what I think should be concerning to all of us. And I should point out that, um, you know, if you just look back at recent history, we learned about enhanced interrogation techniques by the CIA, waterboarding and torture because somebody leaked classified information. We learned about warrantless wiretapping by the Bush administration because somebody leaked classified information. We didn't learn about all the dissents in the run up to the Iraq war, the people who were saying that there weren't weapons of mass destruction because people were afraid to link leak classified information. So, you know, the chilling effect that an indictment like this can have on public discourse and American democracy is, I think, very real. Yeah, and the, the great tragedy of WikiLeaks 
is, in many respects, Assange's behavior. But to take us back, and I'm going to misquote the year, when, when Assange released the collateral damage video, sort of the first part of the Manning links, which was, was 2010. 2010. Yeah. And he was a little bit unknown. He held this press conference at the National Press Club when I was there. It was okay attended. It wasn't a lot. But this was a video that news organizations had tried to obtain legally through FOIA, and the Pentagon had blocked it. Um, this was the, it was the Reuters cameraman who I think was killed in the video. And then there were, you know, there were Iraqis that were killed. They shot up a car with children. The release of that video was absolutely newsworthy. And the fact that the Pentagon blocked its release through the Freedom of Information Act is abominable. That is a great contribution of what Manning did and of what Assange did. It was newsworthy. It was important. And what I worry about with this indictment is that Assange has certainly made mistakes, whether they're ones that deserve to be prosecuted or not. I, I think, like many people, we should wait and see. I don't take the DOJ at face value, but you're, it was raising, newsworthy. You're raising an interesting point, because you could argue at this particular point that Julian Assange and his conduct here could set back the cause of investigative journalism because of the way he did it, which I think made it easier for the Justice Department to come after him. On the other hand, it's important to remember that this is a case of first impression. This has not been tested in the courts yet. The uh, Espionage Act has been used in leak cases, but has only been used to go after leakers. It has not been used uh, to prosecute journalists for publishing. And it may be that in the end, the courts don't side with the government in this case. And if that is the case, then it will strengthen investigative journalism. It'll strengthen our hand going forward, and it'll protect uh, the rights of journalists and whistleblowers. Of course, implicit in that is that this case ever goes to trial, which means Julian Assange still has to be extradited from the UK, which uh, which could take quite a while. And which raises another question. Sitting here Mm -hmm. right now, I don't know how the Brits are going to look at this. Is this going to make the U.S. extradition case stronger or weaker mm-hmm. they could look at they could look at this indictment and and they could be concerned probably not but they could be concerned about the implications for, for of course, freedom de- of the press <laughs> will depend on whether there's a british government at well, the, that's by true. the time this it's comes true. up which there seems that's to right. be a legitimate question exactly. about but look i have no doubt that attorney general bill barr was enthusiastic about bringing this kind of case we we know where he comes from we know what he thinks about uh, leaking of classified information. Didn't he threaten to put you in prison uh, yeah, recently? He was, uh, <laughs> I think he likes to threaten to put lots of people in prison. That's kind of what he gets his rocks off on. But uh, just to wrap this up, I, we did just get a statement from uh, Assange's U.S. lawyer on this. Today, the government charged Julian Assange under the Espionage Act for encouraging sources to provide him truthful information and for publishing that information. The fig leaf that this is merely about alleged computer hacking has been removed. These unprecedented Unprecedented charges demonstrate the gravity of the threat the criminal prosecution of Julian Assange poses to all journalists in their endeavor to inform the public about actions that have been taken by the U.S. government. I think a lot of journalists will read that and kind of nod their heads. Yeah. As I see uh, Sharon uh, has just done, for those who are just (laughs) listening to our podcast and not watching it. Anyway, Sharon, thanks for uh, joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks, Sharon. Congressman Steve Cohen, welcome back to Skullduggery. Skullduggery is good. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I passed a bill in Tennessee once, and I called it the Anti-Skullduggery Act. Right. You told this story. We heard this story yeah. on Skullduggery, actually, okay. the last time. Yes. So um, Speaker Pelosi said um, this week, after the blow-up at the White House, she's praying for the President of the United States. Are you praying for Donald Trump? No. <laughs> so you're not following the speaker on this one. No, if I was praying for anything, I'd be praying for the Donald Trump successor. Right. That he may come soon. All right. Well, you you have been one of those at the forefront of advocating impeachment. You had sponsored an impeachment resolution in the last session of Congress. Uh, You're among those who are frustrated that uh, things haven't moved more rapidly. Where are you right now and where are your colleagues in the House on the question of impeachment? I believe he has definitely committed many impeachable offenses and he should be impeached. Most of my colleagues on the Judiciary Committee think that way, but we're a different breed. 
people who get on the Judiciary Committee care passionately about the Constitution, not to say that others don't, but not as passionately as we do to make it our first choice. And we are charged with the responsibility of defending the Constitution, and I'm the chairman of the subcommittee on the Constitution. So we're a special breed, and I'd say most of us have been quoted as saying 90 percent, and it probably is about 90 percent, are in favor of impeachment. Well, that suggests, I mean, since it's the Judiciary Committee that has the power to do so, that you could impeach the president right now. If we were allowed so what are you to waiting vote for? on it. Well, you have to have the blessings of the chairman, and he has to have the blessings of the speaker. And the speaker is does he, praying does he really for have to have Donald Trump, but she's not blessing the I mean, could impeachment. You, could, could you vote in committee? I mean, I understand politically, I understand realistically, you're not going to defy Nancy Pelosi. But I just wonder the rules of the committee rules. Could you vote to impeach President Trump in committee if Chairman Nadler was so inclined? Well, I think you'd, you, I guess you could. Because you'd have you'd have a, a resolution that'd be introduced in the in the Congress, and it'd be referred to committee and it'd be referred to judiciary, and so he would just have to schedule it, and we could vote it out after hearings. So if something's if it's introduced, it'll be referred like Sheila Jackson Lee put in what's called an inquiry of impeachment, which John Lewis and Joaquin Castro and I are co-sponsors, maybe more at this time. That'll be referred to the Judiciary Committee. That's to initiate an impeachment inquiry. Right. It's not to impeach. It's to begin the process. Yeah, and it's kind of right. technical because once you start, then you can say, all right, we've found it. We've come across the 23-minute tape or the smoking gun or whatever. Yeah. Let's impeach the guy. And then you can have you could have articles drawn up from impeachment, and I guess they could come. They could be spontaneous through the committee, I guess. The committee could draw them and pass them out after an inquiry. I don't think you'd have to have a resolution introduced in Congress. But if you would, that would be simple enough to do. Okay, but it's not going to happen as long as Nancy Pelosi is not in favor of impeachment, uh, I presume. And she said, as we we tape this today on Thursday, uh, she said today that the Democratic caucus is not on a path to impeachment. But you would like to persuade her otherwise. So you have been trying to do that. So what is your argument and are you going to continue? And, and is she persuadable? I guess she's persuadable. You know, she's a smart woman and she's I just disagree with her perspective. I agree with what I think was laid out by Sidney Blumenthal. And then I saw Jill Weinbank's supportive tweet about it, that the Watergate Senate hearings took the public opinion about Nixon from about 17 or 18 percent, where they are now for Trump, up to about 57 percent. Now, there were the facts that were contained in the Nixon administration, but they're very parallel to, in my opinion, to the Trump administration, obstruction of justice and obstruction of Congress. What Trump has done not to respond to subpoenas, not to produce documents, is is obstruction of Congress's investigative role as permitted through Article One and in, in part of our inherent jurisdiction, what we do. That, to me, is an impeachable offense. And, and I think Mueller laid out obstruction of justice with the Mueller report. Special, he tried to get McGahn to go and fire, get Sessions to unrecuse himself and to fire Mueller and to say and to lie about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he tried Comey to lay off a of Flynn and say nice things about him and that Trump wasn't a subject and an object and whatever, all those kind of things. And they got rid of Comey and got Rosenstein to draw up some false, some factual failures of Comey, but not the reasons for him to have fired him, because as he said to Lester Holt, it was that Russia thing, as which he celebrated with Kislyak and the All right, but you know, you've you've got all this evidence. It's laid out in the Mueller report. I'm not quite sure I understand the strategy here of what the Judiciary Committee is doing, because you and a lot of others think the evidence is already there. So what what do you think more hearings and more process is going to produce that's going to make this an easier decision politically than it is right now? Because I think if the American people see exactly what went on, what the Mueller report truly said, that did not just say no collusion and, and no obstruction, as Barr said in the uh, cliff notes for simple. All right, but how do you do that? For, uh, McGahn 
didn't show up. He's he not, may come eventually. He's not testifying. Mueller apparently doesn't want to testify in public. And if he does, he's just going to repeat the language in the report. He's not going to be a passionate witness telling you uh, what I really think, which I didn't already put in the report. I'm not quite sure who your witnesses at these hearings that's going to change the views of the American public are going to be. Well, we don't know that they're not going to be those people. Uh, it's going to take a long time in the courts, I guess, but the courts have generally agreed with us that Trump's defenses on taxes and on other matters have not been at any legal basis, and they've basically summarily thrown them aside and ruled against him. That's at the district court level, and they can appeal and appeal and appeal. We right. might and have that's an going to drag it out for months and months. But and before it, it, you know it, we're going to be into next year, an election year, and that people are going to be focused on that, not on Trump and impeachment. Well, there might be some people that be willing to testify. We don't know yet. And uh, there might be people that will be good citizens and respond to a subpoena like they're supposed to. And it may come that we don't know what Mueller wants to do. But That's it, all kind of a mystery. Nobody knows what Mueller will do. Mueller may come and explain why he talked about the fact that you have a right to, to defend yourself and that he couldn't charge and say that the, that the president should be charged with obstruction of justice because he didn't have an opportunity well, you to were defend hoping himself. to get him this month and it's not going to happen so that doesn't mean it's not, not going to happen yeah. and it doesn't mean that he's not going to say why he didn't put it in the chart he pretty much laid out that it was because he didn't have an opportunity to defend himself and he said it that in a criminal trial or in an impeachment right. congressional action you have a right to defend yourself and you don't have a right to defend yourself in a special counsel report and so he could explain that in more clearly for people that didn't see it and they'll become no, notice it, and he can make it simple for them. Barr just told me. Have, have you ever seen Robert Mueller testify? Yeah. It's not the most electric thing in the world to watch. Not electric, but he generally tells he tells the truth, and he's uh, he he's believable. He's, it, it, he's Rushmore, with a little bit of moving lips. <laughs> Isn't it the case that, that that Nancy Pelosi's strategy right now is is actually working? I mean, she's been saying, okay, let's. You know, we're going to win in the courts, and they have been winning. You, Democrats have been winning in the courts. I mean, the, the uh, Deutsche Bank subpoena federal judge in Manhattan um, said the Deutsche Bank has to turn over all of their records relating to Trump. Same thing with uh, Trump's accountant. A judge in, in Washington did the same thing. You've got New York State, which just passed a law saying that uh, he's got to turn over his tax returns to three congressional committees. So her argument is, let's let this play out in the courts. It's working. And um, continue to investigate. That's how you build a case. You get the American people behind you. And when you have a case where you can really bring the people uh, with you and maybe even some Republicans, that's when you uh, launch uh, an impeachment inquiry. Well, that may, that's, I think that's her theory. And I presume it is. I think that we could get there, but it's going to take a long time in the courts. And what New York State did, of course, is not the courts. That was a legislative action. And I don't think Trump can do anything to appeal that. You can't appeal that. That's a law. They turn over the papers to us. I don't know if he could try to get an injunction to say that we can't look at them. Or I think he's going to, I think his lawyers would argue that it's a bill of attainder, you know, is a legislation that was passed, uh, tailored to one individual. And that may be not legal, but th that'll probably go as not very far. Yeah. So you think you're going to get his I tax returns? We'll I mean, these are the state tax returns, but they're probably uh, very close to what the federal returns are. Maybe. So it'd be helpful. You know, I understand it's just a slow process and it can be appealed all along to the Supreme Court. And then it comes down to one justice. And uh, I have faith that uh, the chief justice will support democracy and the rule of law. So you've had some tense meetings this week within the caucus as uh, more and more mem members get frustrated with the go slow, let's just investigate strategy of Pelosi right now. Um, and I think the other day at the Steering and Policy Committee, you um, were quite exercised and said that Donald Trump is raping the country. I think the full context was we impeached Bill Clinton for sex, but Trump is raping the country. Pretty strong words. Give us the context for, you know, how and why you said that and what the reaction was in the room. It was a, you know, stand up and question the direction of the caucus with the speaker and, with, and the speaker being present is a pretty tense situation. Most people don't do it. So I think there was a little bit of, there was a little tension in the air, but there were a couple people that spoke up and supported my position. There were others that spoke and supported Nancy's position. But it was all in a, in a, a, a debate and there was no ill will. 
I have no ill will at all. Never have a Nancy Pelosi, and I don't think she has it toward me. But uh, you know, speaking truth to power is one of the things a good congressperson should do. And I was in 2007. I was the only member of the Democratic caucus, freshman caucus. We had a large caucus, class of 06, that chose judiciary as my committee, first choice. Right. And it's because I care passionately about the Constitution and about. And I, and I grew up in the Watergate world and watched all those hearings. And so to me, it's a, it's a, it's a special calling I have, and I'm chairman of that subcommittee. That means a lot to me. And I just think this man has run roughshod over the law. So you said like 90% of, of Democratic members on House Judiciary support impeachment right now. How many members in the House overall, you think? You know, I don't know. Somebody asked me to, to, today and, you know, for a count, and they said that uh, I haven't done a count. I guess I'll, I might find out eventually. But I know it's getting more and more people who have come up to me and said, "Are you know where? When are we going to do something? Or right. what can we do?" And I'm getting closer. And and uh, so you know, what do you think? Thirty, forty, something what? like that, probably. More than forty, give or take forty. Give or take forty, right? Bigger you, than a bread box. <laughs> you've got a bill, a, a resolution for impeachment uh, that you've been drafting. When are you going to pop it? And what exactly do you want to impeach? the president for well article one two three november of 2017 i filed articles of impeachment right and they included obstruction of justice Mm -hmm. emoluments domestic and emoluments foreign Mm -hmm. attacks on the judiciary and attacks on the first press and i've had them annotated to include the obstruction charges that were in the Mueller report and the uh, obstruction of congress and there's they're with probably drafted within the other sections, but that's two additional areas of of impeachable uh, actions by the president. There could be more, but right now that's what we've got, and we're just refining them. So when do you pop it, and how many co-sponsors will you have? Hard to say. It was tough to get 17 last time, but we got 17. Uh, Al Green, I think, just did his own, and mm-hmm. maybe he signed on to Brad Sherman, so had two. They haven't looked for co-sponsors. I've had several people come up to me and say they want to be a co-sponsor, and when I do it, they, they want to be there. Uh, I can't say it's been a groundswell, a lot of people, but some. I think that we'll, you know, if we put it in, could be 20, 25, 30 members would be willing to put their name out there. And when do you do this? Not necessarily, don't know. You know, I have to see the right time. And the straw that broke the camel's back last time was Charlottesville. But I took three months to get it refined and three months to look for sponsors, some of whom we thought would have been good for us and good for the resolution and we thought we'd have them and they talked a game but they didn't weren't willing to put their name on the line so we first introduced it there were just six of us right. and then we worked and we grew it to 17 it took a long time so next it's amazing to see all the people that are running for president mm-hmm. uh, some of them were in the house with me yeah. and they wouldn't touch it all of a sudden they're running on impeachment <laughs> like who well they, all of them i mean beto beto didn't touch it yeah. Seize Fort Seth Bolton, he didn't touch it. Yeah. Now he's for impeachment. Who else is running? Tulsi Gabbard, she I think she's for impeachment, I'm not sure, but she didn't touch it. Yeah. Uh Swalwell didn't get near it. I think he's for impeachment. I'm not sure. Maybe it's you know I think it's, he's it's, come around. It's yeah. come around if you if you, for those people that have a larger uh constituency. So when um <laughs> Bill Barr defied your committee's subpoena, you famously showed up in the hearing room uh, with a bucket of uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And make, a ceramic chicken that's right yeah, back and there. And a on. ceramic chicken yeah. to uh, make the point that he was, uh, that Barr was, uh, lacked courage for not showing up. Uh, but you also did something else. I think you went on CNN and you said that, uh, that uh, the Congress ought to enforce a subpoena by sending the sergeant of arms out to literally arrest the attorney general and to bring him to Congress. Um, and I guess you'd have to put him in the pokey mm-hmm. until he testified. And were you serious about that? Yeah. I mean, most people, and I've talked to Chairman Nadler and others about it, and they think that we can't do it. It'll be too dramatic, and people might think that's too far to put him in jail. But really what he's done is thumbed his nose at Congress. I'm not coming to, to, to testify. You'd have to deal with his security guards, by the way. Well, there's some we, talk about that, but that we would probably, <laughs> you know, deputize some well, law t- enforcement people in the District of Columbia rather than have the sergeant at arms do it, and they would probably find a convenient way to do it. And I'm sure he would quickly file some 
uh, a habeas or whatever um, <laughs> process he could see but, to get but him he, out. But he does have you know security guards with him at all times. There'd be a gun battle if uh, your, I don't think your there'd DC be a gun people tried to. No, there wouldn't be a gun battle. Uh, Where uh, would arrest. he have been held? Is there a detention facility in in the Congress? I don't think there is. There's, there's, yeah. the, there's where the, the little area underneath the stairs where the Lincoln, uh, Washington was going to be buried. Could have just locked him in. Yeah, yeah. Adam and you know, they, but they could, we could contract with the district. It's really too hypothetical because it's not going to happen. I mean, it's nice to think of it and, and whatever. And but you, you pursued it. I mean, you researched it. You I had conversations do, with the chairman about I think this. we should do the maximum we can to have the Congress's authority respected and enforced. And right now it's not being respected and not being enforced. And it's going to take a long time. Harriet Myers took four years, her contempt. But look, um, for, for the so record on this. I'm a member of Congress. We're Article One, mm -hmm. Article One, we're co-equal branches of government, but we fought the Revolutionary War to get rid of a king, a strong monarch. Washington wasn't a strong president. They wanted to put power in the Congress. And our, that's why it was Article One. And we're the people's representatives. The House are the people's representatives. The Senate are elected, used to be elected by the state legislatures, but they're elected by the states. They're by the people now. That's only been a 100-year-old phenomenon. We are the people's representatives. We are the real repositories of power. And he's basically thumbed his nose at us. And if we don't stand up for ourselves, who is? For the record, he was willing to testify before your committee, but he, he objected. But he objected to having you, you, the committee staff do the work for you. And you know, some could argue no, you wrong, guys. Michael. No, no, not the committee staff do the work for the us. Committee the committee council. Committee, the That's committee the council to do additional questioning, right. which was done in many, many, many hearings over the years, including the the, the hearings uh, with Whitewater, where Chertoff was the uh, uh, Republican council, mm -hmm. and Ben Venisti was the Democratic council, right. and, a, and, a, and a Watergate, Iran where Fred Contra. Thompson did a lot of them. You, you name it. It's nothing yeah. new. We were not in reinventing the wheel. He would be reinventing the wheel by dictating the terms. That's a chicken. But there was nothing to stop you from doing the questioning, all the questioning yourselves. You're a committee full of lawyers, and it was yeah, like five you minutes. guys My, were the chickens Michael, who were afraid Michael, to question never them on done your it. own. You've never done it. What's that? You've got five minutes. Minutes. Five minutes no, is, no, a, no. is a limited Colin, amount. Michael, five minutes is a very limited amount of time to question anybody and to get them to where you want to go because they can be evasive and they can they can filibuster and that's what Whitaker did and that's what most of them do and right. you can only get so far and then your five minutes is up and it goes to the next guy. If you can do thirty minutes, it's a lot more effective and it's not reinventing the wheel and nobody, sh no witness should dictate to Congress on the terms on which they are going to be a Collins, witness. Collins, the ranking Republican, said they were willing to waive the five minute rule and each member could have given extra time deferred to another member. There were lots of ways you could have questioned bar at length about all the things you wanted to do, but you didn't do it because you wanted to, you know, hold them in contempt. No, that's not why we did it. We did it because no, but we you thought it was right done it. to do like precedent has set. Right. And there's plenty of precedent for having counsel question. And the counsel would have come at the mm -hmm. end. They'd had 30 minutes. And the fact is he was afraid of Barry Burke and he was afraid of Norm Eisen and, and uh, attorney general who was a good, competent, effective person strong in his opinions about his summary of the, of the Mueller report and his positions on obstruction of justice and his, the legal bases would not have been afraid of that. He was afraid. And in 30 minutes, you could tear him apart. Well, have you, you called did. for him to resign? You, you, no, that's why I call for him to resign. I mean, that's meaningless. He's going to care. There's no reason. I think he should evaporate. <laughs> but he's not going to evaporate either. All right. When so he was when he was named to be attorney general, I had a good friend who told me, "Oh, he's highly respected. and He's a good guy, mm -hmm. and he's going to be okay." Mm -hmm. And I thought, "Well, maybe he will be." And then I, I have gradually learned that my friend mm -hmm. was wrong. Mm -hmm. So look, the Republican narrative on this is, you know, Mueller had two years, lots of money, lots of subpoenas. You know, he came up with what he came up with, did not find a criminal conspiracy between Trump and the Russians. I know you and a lot of others expected there were going to be more indictments, that Don Jr. was going to get indicted. There are 12 that, other indictments. That, that there, are 12, there are 12 other saying, investigations. We don't know who the subjects yeah, are. Right. But they've been farmed out. Clearly, if Mueller thought that they were central to his investigation, he wouldn't have folded up shop and farmed them out to other offices. We don't know that. Well, why did he, he, why he farmed did he fold out Michael up? Cohen? That was a pretty major thing. 
he, well, he farmed it because the Southern District had stuff completely unrelated to Russia. He farmed out some stuff with, with Roger Stone with, and, and with Manafort. No, he brought the Stone indictment. He brought the Manafort indictment. Okay. And then he led others. But my point is, look, they've got their narrative that, you know, Mueller spent all this time, all this resources, couldn't come up with the smoking gun showing a criminal conspiracy. And we now have the ongoing Inspector General investigation into the origins of the Russia investigation, the role that the Steele dossier played. Um, uh, clearly, based on Mueller's report, many of those allegations were not corroborated and substantiated. And yet it was presented to the FISA court as valid, substantiated information. Do you accept that there are legitimate questions about the FBI and how it began the investigation and its use of the uncorroborated Steele dossier in launching the whole Russia investigation to begin with? No, not at all. Not at all. Nothing. I, you no, don't see any. I've read these books about civil, Russia by some right, really distinguished yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think they agreed either. Yeah. The fact is, it was started because yeah. of, of a discussion the by, stuff. in, right. in yes. Europe, and, and that's how right. it started. It wasn't the Steele dossier. And it, but and it played the, a role. It, if you read the book closely, you'll see the the uh, and the book, by the way, is Russian Roulette, by uh, available and David Gorn, Amazon, uh, still available on Amazon. <laughs> but it played a role, and um, and it does look from today's perspective that much uh, of what was the Steele dossier was accurate. They maybe Cohen did or did not go to, to well, Prague. Well, Cohen Apparently says he, he didn't. didn't. Mueller says he didn't. I mean, what? So maybe he did. What makes you think he was there? That what? <laughs> maybe that's not the, the central thing, and maybe that well, was that, wrong. Well, that was the one. Actually, it was a pretty sensational. Steele was a reliable informant, and search yeah. warrants are based on if the reliability of the informant and then the reliability of the information. And it was felt that he was a reliable informant. But Papadopoulos, that's where it started. Right. And the fact is, if the FBI would not have pursued that as they would have been derelict in their responsibility to defend the country, and, and they, they did the right thing to, to look into it, and, and that they should have looked into it because there was probable cause. And, and you get into it, so, so Mueller didn't find conspiracy. He was looking at a criminal conspiracy, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There was a lot of evidence of misdeeds, a lot of evidence of interactions between the Russians and the Trump campaign giving Kalimnica, whatever, the, 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 the polling Boy, results yeah. and all of the stuff with the Trump Moscow, which we Trump lied about, and Trump going in and fudging with the information, saying it wasn't about sanctions, it was about adoptions, and don't even mention anything about Hillary and the dirt they had on her, and the whole thing was doctored. They were, it was obvious to me that there was enough to say there was a preponderance of the evidence, which is what you need in impeachment, and that they had too many the context and when you i think when deutsche bank records are going to show and his income taxes that the russians own him and to have a president who's owned by the russians who has lots well, of contact how with, explain that that's a, it's a pretty serious charge yeah money laundering I, money, money laundering, laundering by who when where and and what's your evidence of it Donald Jr. Or I think it was Donald Jr. Well, no, he Arab. said that they got a lot of their business from Russia. They That's said they got true. a lot of their money from yeah, Russia. So we don't need money from American well, banks. Well, Russians buy condos in Trump Towers. That's a source of revenue for the Trump organization. Right. No question. But what's your evidence that buy, it was money Russians laundering? buy mansions in, in, in Palm Beach and sell right. them to Trump, and Trump makes right. lots of money off yeah, of them. It's that, been yes. years and years and years, and they run their money through through Cyprus and, and where there was Wilbur Ross, but at mm -hmm. Cyprus. Yeah. I mean, all, it all it's all there. And then the fact is all those golf courses in Scotland, mm -hmm. it was cash that people say it's just on cash money. And then that's what they admitted. We don't need, we've got all this cash. Who does cash for all that kind of money? Right. You're hiding money. Right. And Deutsche Bank was known for, for, for laundering Russian money. Right. And we do have the uh, recent uh, information that there were people at the bank in 2016-17 who thought there were suspicious transactions going on. But I still... So there could have been enough, in the, and even in Section 1, for impeachment. There, there can be there. But just we've because gone from well, could have been from where you started. Well, I'm You're starting an obstruction of justice. Him. I do think the Russians own him, but you need Deutsche Bank and, and his taxes will, I believe, show it. Let me just ask you a political question, and I know that you are pursuing this uh, because you have you feel like you have a, uh, have a civic duty and, and a constitutional duty. It. You're passionate about it, but you're also a politician. You spend some of your it's time dealing thing. with. I didn't say it was, <laughs> but you spend some of your time. You have to just by definition dealing with politics. So, what's your judgment? Is is impeachment politically? 
uh, good thing to do politically or not a good thing to do? I think it's a good thing to do politically. Number one, because the public doesn't have a good perspective on government. And I think if there are people believe they're impeachable offenses, they should pursue it. And they ought to pursue what their mind tells them and their heart tells them and what's right and not be afraid. Too many politicians are afraid to take a position. And they see There are a lot of Republicans that can't stand Trump and they think he's done bad things, but they won't say a word about it. And I think if you see the Constitution being trampled upon and they're being— the Emoluments Clause, he's supposed to come to Congress before he takes money from foreign powers, and that's to give notice. Congress can say no, yeah, but it's also to give notice so you know what he's doing. So when he makes it, when he goes to, to Helsinki and he stands there like an a, a altar boy next to the Pope— and treats you know Putin like the Pope, and he's there going, which vestment do you want next? You'll know why. But we don't know why because he hasn't had he hasn't he's violated the Emoluments Clause and hasn't shown where he's getting his money from. And the same thing in Saudi Arabia, he had so many places, and that's what it's about. And I think our country has been sold out. And I think everything he's doing is for his benefit. And he's got a business. He made forty was it four? How much money did he make last year? Four hundred million, forty million. I don't know what he made more. A lot of money. And he's making it, and he knows every single business. Tree. He knows who stays at the Trump Hotel. He knows who's renting from him in Trump Tower. And a lot of them are foreign governments that are giving him money. And the man, he's Fred Trump's son. So if you get your way and the House ultimately does impeach, do you look forward to using your legal skills to be one of the managers for impeachment at the trial in the Senate making the case against Donald Trump? If I was, that would be an honor. I don't know that I would be. There are a lot of members in the Judiciary Committee who would be excellent at it. We've got former prosecutors like Ted Lieu, who would certainly be a, a person you'd look to, and there's others. Um, Jamie J- Jamie would be real good. Raskin. Right. There are a lot of people. But they're going to need some firebrands, and um, well, you, you I would, would be, qualify in that category. And as far as the yeah. politics, I think politically it helps yeah. the Democrats because I think if you put the light on what they've done, I think there will be more people that will support Democratic candidates for having the gumption to protect the Constitution and putting the country first. And I think that you'll have the Senate will not convict him, no question. But I think we need to get the Senate Democrat to really get legislation passed and to change this country. And and the only way I think you're going to see some of those Republican senators beat is if they don't vote for impeachment, they could get beat. And you've got Cory Gardner and you've got McSally and you've got Collins and you've got a couple others that could get beat because of this. And that's not the reason to bring it, but it's reality. Instead of saying, well, the Senate's not going to convict him, let the senators do what they do and let them deal with it at the polls. And I think the American public, after seeing the proof, just as they did in Watergate, will see to it that this is the most corrupt administration ever and that they will not support a senator who didn't support convicting him of of impeaching him. And on uh, that note, thanks for joining us once again on Skullduggery. Good to be with you. Thanks to Congressman Steve Cohen and Sharon Weinberger for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.